Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. Today we have a conversation for you that I think you're going to find just fascinating. It's a bonus episode, and it's with an author and progressive Christian pastor named Colby Martin. I reached out to him a few weeks ago and asked him if he'd be willing to have a conversation with me, number one, to just model civil discourse, but also to bring some clarity on what evangelical Christianity and progressive Christianity have in common, but also where we differ. We talk about issues of the resurrection, how we approach scripture, what it means that Jesus is God. We touch on the LGBTQ issue today. And the bottom line is, I think you're just going to find this so helpful and intriguing when we ask the question, what really is progressive Christianity? So as usual, we really hope you'll enjoy and consider sharing this with a friend. Now, just so you know, right out of the gate, this is not a debate. I've had a lot of debates before. I enjoy them. They're fun. There's value in debate. Uh, Colby, maybe you and I will follow up and have more of a, a why conversation. This mm. is more of a what conversation. In other words, the whole goal here, there's really two goals. Number one, model just a civil conversation between people who differ pretty substantively on important issues and also bring clarity where we agree and where we disagree. So my guest today is willing to come on the show with a Christian apologist we had never <laughs> met before, emailed you out of the blue. Uh, so kudos to you for coming into this lane. I know you have a background in apologetics and know how these things can go. But Colby Martin has written a book called The Shift, in which he says it's his move from conservative Christianity to progressive Christianity, and is a pastor of a progressive Christian church in San Diego, really about an hour from me. So clearly qualified to engage in this conversation. Colby, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for the invite, too, by the way. Kudos to you for extending the invitation. It can well, often feel a whole lot easier and safer to just have the conversations with the friendlies. And that's good. That's important. We need that too. Yeah. And I share that your value of, we also need to continue to figure out how to talk to one another when we disagree on things. So anyways, thanks. It, amen to that. You're welcome. Well, some it's kind of obligatory in these conversations to start with somebody's story. And what I don't want this to be is story time, taking up your story, my story back and forth, but stories do help us understand where somebody's coming from. And in your book, you talk a lot about your personal story and how this shapes your journey. So why don't you got to just kind of give us the, the synopsis of going from conservative Christianity to becoming sure. a progressive Christian pastor? Yeah, you bet. Um, and please feel free to cut me off at any point because I can be a bit verbose, Sean. My All life right. motto is, why use 10 words when 50 will do? Uh, <laughs> so feel free anytime if you're like, all right, and now moving on. But yeah, in a, in a nutshell, I would say this. I was born and raised in a uh, Baptist home and then went to a, like a generic evangelical church in my high school years after my parents divorced and really fell in love with kind of evangelical culture and doctrine in high school went to a four-year Christian uh, liberal arts Baptist college, got my degree in pastoral ministry from my Baptist college, uh, and then got a job uh, shortly after college at a Christian Missionary Alliance church as one of their worship pastors. Um, and then, you know, did full-time ministry for a number of years after that, all within this larger tent of 
what I guess we could just for the sake of today call evangelical Christianity. Sure. And uh, I, I, I absorbed it all. I almost said bought it all hook, line, and sinker. But, you know, that's a real, I think, cynical way is that people were selling something. No, people were legitimately passing on what was meaningful and true for them. In fact, uh, and forgive me, I'm sure you're on one hand tired of hearing this. On the other hand, maybe grateful for the legacy. But your dad's book, Evidence uh, Demands a Verdict, was one of my favorite books. Like that and Lee Strobel, uh, Case for Christ. Like I knew these books inside and out and loved to uh draw from them and quote them and point people toward them. And so, uh, yeah, I was, I was just cruising down that path, Sean, of thriving in the evangelical world. Um, and then, like I said, a couple years after college, as I was working at a, at a church, um, was really when I began to, for the first time, be exposed to, or even be made aware of, that there have been different ways that good-hearted men and women of Christian faith have understood what it means to be a Christian like for 2000 years. There's been, there's been, there's been different answers than kind of this narrow for me, narrow Baptistic evangelical way. Uh, And that was super fascinating to me. Like, wait, you mean people have been asking different questions and coming up with different answers? Like you mean Christianity is a lot more diverse than than this little narrow, like Romans road uh, sort of way of thinking about it. Um, and that, you know, for lack of a better word, that just sort of opened my mind to this place of, I need to, I need to, to look into this more. I need to, I need to ask better questions and I need to be open to the fact that maybe there's different ways of responding. And that uh, led me on probably a number year journey of reading different authors and asking different questions. Um, and then I don't, I don't know when, maybe 2008, 2009, it's probably when I pulled the last stake out of evangelical Christianity and was like, I don't think I belong there anymore, <laughs> or okay. I don't think they would have me anymore. Uh, and now like the past decade or so, I've, I've used this label, for lack of a better one, progressive Christian, because I think it fits me for now. Um, okay. But yeah, there you go. Okay, fair enough. That, 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 that's a great sum- summary to start with. When, when I read your book, it's full of some, of some serious hurt and pain and rejection and uh, it's pretty raw at times. So I- I'm wondering in your experience, how much of this is due to the hurt looking back on the way you were treated at times, like go from a church, from other people, and how much of it is like theology that drives it, or is it both? What's the the you know the train kind of driving the caboose, so to speak? Yeah. No, I appreciate that question because that is, you know <laughs> – for, for for those who are watching or may watch us back later, if you've ever had a conversation with someone who has le- left evangelical Christianity, um, you don't have to scratch the surface much to find there's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of hurt. Um, and so I, I think your, your observation is spot on. For me, you know, I come, I come to the table with all sorts of uh, what we call now uh, layers of privilege. So my, my fact that I identify as white, as a, as a straight male, like in this world, I just, the world is sort of bent t- toward my favor in many ways. And so I don't have a lot of the same hurts that those who might identify as queer do, or those who might uh, be people of color. Um, women certainly have the, have their own unique pain in this, in this space. Um, so I'm conscious of how, while I do have pain from my evangelical background, it's, it's 
it's of a, of, of a different kind. For me, a lot of the pain was when I started to shift away from some of these evangelical, uh, like tried and true answers, when I started to shift away from that, or even just get curious about it, it was met with, um, it was met with shame. It was met with rejection. It was met with, uh, if you don't believe that anymore, then you're no longer a Christian. If you don't believe that anymore, then you're no longer saved. If you don't believe that anymore, then, you know, you are outside of God's favor or however that might be described. And that sort of messaging is, is, is just painful to tell people like, you have to believe this or else. Um, and then when, you know, as I talk about, I reference it a little bit in my book, The Shift, my book before that tells more of the story of how eventually I was fired from my church when yeah. my theology on sexuality shifted. Um, so yeah. So in terms of like real world pain, losing your job, losing your house, losing your livelihood, sure. that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, granted, I'm really glad it happened because my life now is full of so much joy and light and hope and goodness. But um, yeah, that was hard. So that's, okay. that's one way I'd answer that question. So I guess kind of what I'm getting getting at is when somebody goes through the shift you're talking about, how does how do you how are you careful to say I'm not reacting against something emotionally because of this pain, but I'm really seeking after truth? Because I'll see some people who will go through the hurt that you describe and say, you know what, this is an example of a church that just didn't live the model of Jesus. Yeah. It's not the position, it's the way people treated me. So I'm not going to reject the position. Other people are like, I've been hurt and throw the whole thing out. So what does it look like for you in your thought process? Because my journey is a little bit different. I went through doubt and I want to come back to this idea of certainty with you. But I thought things were black and white and someone wasn't a Christian because they literally just hadn't read my dad's book. Like, how hard is it? The evidence it demands a verdict. There's, there's the proof. And then you grow up and it's like, okay, things are a little bit more nuanced and gray and yeah. it's not that simple. But when I went through a period of doubt, pretty significant doubt, I told my dad, who's this apologist, and his response was like, son, I think that's great. And I literally looked at him. I was like, did you hear what I just said? You're this apologist defending the <laughs> what world. What happened to and, my dad? Yeah. And, you know, my dad's like, the glass is 99% full. He goes, son, you got to follow truth. You can't just live on my beliefs. You have to follow what you think is real. And I'll love you no matter what. And he said to me, he said, don't rebel against what you've learned because you're hurt or angry. I see that a lot. Only reject it if you're convinced it's not true. And that was actually really good advice. So I see what you're talking about in the evangelical church that like doubt is a sin. We don't know what to do with it. We freak out. But like Jude 122 is like, have mercy on those who doubt. So how do you separate the hurt and the pain and the treatment that's there from saying, okay, was this Christians treating me badly? Or does that mean it's false? What's that process for you? I don't know that the separation is super clear or or clean and cut, Sean, because a lot of the hurt is a direct result of the theology, is a direct Mm. result of the beliefs. I understand that it takes the manifestation of the humans doing the hurting, but it stems from harmful beliefs. So for instance, when a woman is told that they are not allowed to teach a man that they're not allowed, that they are 49% of a marriage and a man is 51%. When they are given these, like those are just inherently harmful ideas. Um, 
so I for me it's not as it's all it's all connected it's all related and I would not and I do not in my own practice I do not begrudge people I'm not saying you do by the way I'm just saying I don't begrudge people who do ultimately say I need to leave this thing because of the hurt independent of as you call my or as you might have referenced independent of what may or may not be true I don't begrudge someone who's like you know what the 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 pain is so intense and the harm is so severe that I want nothing to do with it hmm. and I don't know how a a I don't know what other response other than just looking them in the eye and being like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I probably would too. If if that was me, if that was my story, I probably would too. And to to ask that person to like return back to the source of pain, to have some sort of intellectual theological query to make sure that they really want to leave, uh, for me is like, although not totally similar, obviously it's a metaphor, is like a spouse who is being abused by their other spouse, that person doesn't need to remain in that to figure out, well, are we really going to be compatible if we can get things figured out? It's like, no, there's, there's legit harm, trauma, pain happening here. Um, it's time to leave. So anyway, I just, I don't know if that was an adequate response. It's just for me, it's not necessarily an either or it's, it's, it's a both and. Okay. So that, that, that makes sense. That's helpful. I'm trying to get at the source and the basis of our beliefs. Like for me, the bottom line, whether it's true or not, is the primary question that should trump all other things. And I think, I'm guessing you would agree with that when it's all said and done. Um, I think this might be an area where we differ in terms of partly it's not just the way you were treated, but the theology itself is harmful. So one question I want to ask, and you might have already answered this, is had you been treated differently? Because there's a, a quote I pulled up here I want to read. You said, many of us left conservative Christianity because of the lack of space for doubts and questions. You had to be perfect, and shame thrives in those conditions. There's there's a lot of truth to that. I agree that sometimes like doubt is the worst thing you can do in Christian circles, and we put shame on people who doubt. And that's why some studies show that kids don't leave their you know, evangelical faith because of doubt, it's because of unexpressed doubt, that they don't feel the invitation to express it. Do you think your journey or other progressive Christian journeys might be different if doubt and questions had been invited as a part of the Christian faith? Mm, mm. So, absolutely. I, I, so two quick thoughts, and I will make them quick. One, yes, absolutely. I do think that a ton of traction would be gained by more churches being open about uh, inviting people to have questions and doubts and just changing their entire posture around that hundred percent. But then also I, when I wrote that, in fact, if I can go back and re rewrite it today, I might try to get a little more clear because I think I was maybe being a bit reductive there. It's not so much the questions that weren't welcome even if that might've been true in some individual instances, it's more like the questioning wasn't welcome, which is to say people could like, you know, I think back to my youth pastor. He was totally fine with people asking him questions as long as when it's all said and done, you land on the right answer. And for him, he had a very clear. So it wasn't just that questions are bad. It was, you can ask the questions, just know that here's the answer. And what, you can't be, you can't remain in a state of questioning, right? You can't remain in a state of what if I just don't know? What if I just stay in this place of not knowing? Is that okay? Well, the answer is yes, it's okay. But 
what I was told was, no, it's not okay. And then two, what if I land in a different place? So that's why maybe I, I regret the way I worded that, just because it's not so much that the questions weren't welcome. It's that questioning okay. as posture and attitude was not welcome. Um, and then landing in a different place than sort of the, um, the, the correct positions as stated by whatever church it was, um, was not permitted. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think that's an area where we're going to find some agreement between the two of us. And I see that in the evangelical church, like questions are fine, but questioning people freak out. There can be shame. I see that in the church. Mm. That wasn't my experience. I mean, my dad distinctly said to me, he goes, son, I love you no matter what you believe. That's not at stake. And I think that really freed me up to be like, hey, if I don't think Jesus is God, we're going to have a different faith. But we're in relationship. He loves me, cares for me. And it's that kind of posture that I don't think we do super well in the church. Now, let me ask you something. You probably don't expect this question. But imagine you're still an evangelical and you believed probably what I believe, that Christianity is true. But you want to invite questions. What would you do differently as an evangelical pastor to teach young people what you think is true but not in a way that's dogmatic, requires certainty, and undermines questioning that young people might have. <laughs> uh, man, that's like that's like asking somebody, imagine you were to play golf, <laughs> but you couldn't use clubs. How how would you hit it off the tee? Um, because because I think my number one, and that's probably a terrible metaphor, but I, I use about 27 metaphors and hope that one of them is, is worthwhile. Cool. Um, I think I get, I get the heart of the question. It's a fascinating question, but I think where I get tripped up, Sean, is it is, and this, forgive me if this is overly reductive, but at the heart of evangelical Christianity is the belief, the assumption Mm-hmm. that what God cares about most is what we believe. A way to say that differently is evangelical Christianity is built upon the, that you have to have the right answer to at least one or two or three questions, right? This is the whole premise. Like if you want to get to heaven when you die, you have to be able to have this correct belief. The whole thing is sort of built on this idea that what God, what, what the creator of everything cares about most is what humans think that they have Mm. the right data in between their ears. And I find that, um, find that wrong. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, and, and the progressives love the word problematic. So I'll, I'll drop that. I find that incredibly problematic. Um, so when I think about your question, it's like, well, what I would do is I would start by saying (laughs) when Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing he said, love God, Love your neighbor, love yourself. When Jesus wanted to describe how people knew that they would be followers, he said, they'll know this, that you love one another. When he, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, of course I do. Jesus said, well, then make sure you get your theology right. No, I'm sorry. He said, well, then go feed my sheep. Which is to say, friends, let's take the idea that we have to have the right answers off the table entirely. And no, because this is what your dad, this is what your dad did to you. This is what your dad did for you, Sean, is what I heard, is your dad provided for you a sense of belonging, that you Mm -hmm. belong in this family, Sean, Mm -hmm. regardless of what you 
believe or think. And once you have belong, once you know that you belong, you have freedom to flex, you have freedom to move, you have freedom to ask and inquire and all of that, because it none of that impacts ultimately your belonging. And I think that is a just a microcosm of what is true about all of us, that we are, by virtue of being human beings on this planet, we are loved children of God who belong, you might say, in the family of God. And the idea of belief can just really be set aside for a moment. Um, and, and that gives people the freedom to flex and to be curious and ask questions. So that's, that's what I would do. And then I would ultimately still not qualify as an evangelical pastor anymore. (laughs) No, no, fair enough. Um, I I think this might be another distinction. I, I don't think scripturally what God cares most about is what we believe. I mean, James two says, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have correct theology. I think what scripture says is what God cares about most is that we love him and love other people. But we can only properly love people if it's informed by certain theology about the character of God, the character of man, the nature of salvation. So I saw a couple statements in your book that are like, I, I don't have them right in front of me, but like, if you think it's all about just getting the right answers, you've missed the boat. And I hear that. I'm like, yes, it's not just about getting the right answers. But that doesn't mean the right answers don't matter. It means we better know those answers and then be able to apply them. Like if I read a letter of Paul, he spends a lot of time on theology, say the book of Romans. Then he gets to Romans 12. And it's like, now that you understand salvation and Jews and Gentiles, what does it mean to love people in practice? So I think that may be just a little difference between the two of us that I would say Christianity is not just, God is not just interested in what we believe when it's all said and done. That's a fundamentalist way that sometimes in Christian circles, we overemphasize Hmm, at the expense of how that doctrine applies to relationships. Um, Let me, so let's get- Can I respond respond to that real quick? Um, I love that you shared that. What's coming up for me, Sean, is that it feels like a little bit of smoke and mirrors. A little bit of like, look over here. Because what I mean, what I mean by that is, and and maybe you do, maybe you are entirely different than what my experience as an evangelical was, and and, and I totally hold space for that, uh, okay. by the way. So, um, but, and I hear what you're saying that that, but don't you don't isn't your sort of take that the when it comes to, if we just might say heaven and hell and sort of the classic evangelical doctrine of heaven and hell, that for a person to sort of enjoy eternal bliss with God, that there has to be like a, a, a belief. There has to be a confession. There has to be an acquiescence to an idea. So my answer is correct beliefs are necessary, but when it's all said and done, the Christian life in evangelicalism is not about having right beliefs. It's about being in relationship with God and in in relationship with other people. So even my relationship with my wife is going to require certain truths about who she is, how I love her, the nature of our relationship. The same is true with God. So I'm not taking away that we have to believe certain things to be saved. That is true. I think that's clear in Scripture. But the most important thing is not just about beliefs for the sake of beliefs. 
It's about loving God and loving other people. It's about taking those beliefs and applying them in relationship. That fundamentalism, I think, is about just beliefs for the sake yeah. of beliefs. No, we, we agree there. It just it sounds to me like you're saying one A, if I could tell you, one A is the correct beliefs and one B is working that out in love. But but then you say at the end of the day, and you say it's one B, but it's not because at the end of the day, it still still sounds like one like it is one A for you. At the end of the day, you do have to the, the right belief. If those were ordered the other way, oh did I okay? If those are ordered the other way, my understanding, uh, my experience of evangelical Christianity is that that wouldn't count for eternal life. Is if you ordered if you if your beliefs were incorrect, but your lovingness was correct. So anyway, we don't have to get hung up on this. I just feel like okay. I just feel like the that I hear what you're saying, and it sounds like you're saying the right thing. But I feel like if I dig just a couple inches further, I don't know that you can really get out of. And we're not here to debate, so it's not about that. I guess no, I'll just okay. say from I'll say for me, for me. I still don't know how evangelicals um, don't, at the end of the day, say beliefs are, are what matters most, even if it's, a, like I said, a 1A, 1B sort of thing. Well, I, to me, I guess it's easy. And I'll, I'll give a response. We'll come back and then we'll move on. Is that yeah. Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? So yes. we're supposed to have a right belief about the commandment. It's to love God and it's love other people. That's why we're here. We're put in a garden to be in relationship Heaven is described as a relationship. A city is relationship. We're here for relationship with God and other people. That's what we're made for, and that's how we thrive. So during COVID, you can sit around with the right beliefs, but if you're not in incarnate relationships with people, we suffer. So in our minds, we can separate right beliefs from action. But I think in principle, God is looking that we have the right beliefs about him and we live that out together. That's why faith, as you talk about in your book, although we would little, differ a little how to apply it, really means a sense of trust. Well, to trust somebody, I have to know certain things about this person and have certain beliefs about the nature of our relationship to trust this person. Trust is so much more than just having the right beliefs, but it's no less. Is that, does that at least make sense? And maybe that's just an area where we differ over it. Yeah. No, it's good. Yeah, we can move on. Thanks. Oh, all right. Okay, fair enough. Want to make sure you have a chance to speak. Let's get to what we mean by progressive Christianity, because this is where I think some of what we're going to talk about might be most helpful to people. So you have a definition in your book, but just tell us when you say you're a progressive Christian. And I know you don't speak for all progressive Christians. I don't speak for all evangelicals. Tell me what you mean by that term. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate you you stating that. Um, Because I've had a couple of YouTube videos where (laughs) some progressive Christians have been on there like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't speak for me. It's like, no, it's absolutely true. I do not speak for all progressive Christians. Um, what I try to do, so I, I think about it like this. If evangelical Christianity is like classical music, then maybe progressive Christianity is a bit more like jazz, which is to say within classical music, you have pretty tight parameters um, around what can be done with any given piece of music. And if you fall outside of that, it might still be a nice piece of music. It just no longer would be considered in sort of the classical genre. Whereas jazz, 
you have real loosey-goosey porous boundaries. You have a general sense, like here's the key that we're playing in. Here's a little bit of the the time signature. Although, hey, if you want to go from six eight to four four just for one bar, ain't nobody going to stop you. Um, here's the here's the tempo, and then there's just a lot of room to breathe in that. So when I think about progressive Christianity, Sean, for me it's it's more like that. It's more like a movement than it is, um, uh, you know, evangelical Christianity. I, I hear what you're saying. There's some diversity there. And also there are organizations whose purpose is to stamp people with the approved you are in the evangelical world and not. Like I remember in college, one of my professors had to argue like, no, I'm not an open theist. Like, don't take my credentials away. Sure. Um, I'm not one of those scary Greg Boyd types. Um, so, but progressive Christianity for me is much more like a, a movement. It's, it's like a modality of Christianity. It's a way okay. to practice your faith. And in the book, I named four, what I call marker. I don't know if I call them marker. I call them markers now. Four markers of progressive Christianity, which is to say, this doesn't define progressive Christianity. It just says that chances are, if you move along the spectrum from conservative toward progressive Christianity, chances are the more you get this direction, the more likely the people will sort of have these four convictions. One okay. of them is an open and affirming posture towards those who identify LGBTQ. Um, one of those is an egalitarian attitude and belief as it relates to men and women, that they're equal. None of that complementarian nonsense. Uh, uh, three is that uh, there is an acceptance that the idea of white supremacy is a real thing and that um, that needs to be dismantled and that there needs to be work to uh, undo the damage of that. And then uh, four is there's what I call an agreeableness to science, which is to say, if science reveals a thing to be true, it fits within the larger umbrella of what is true. And we don't have to fight that anymore. So okay. it progressive Christianity might be more than that, but I think it is at least it holds those sort of uh, metrics um, to help people as they move along in that spectrum. Okay. So l- let's aim for some clarity here. So, Take the first issue, women egalitarian. Obviously, evangelicals differ on complementarianism. Some are egalitarian. Even at Biola, we have some who are egalitarian. A colleague of mine is. So that's one you could hold and be in the evangelical church. Yep. Second one, when it comes to white supremacy. Now, I'll say yes. Is- I'll say yes. My point, though, is that there isn't going to be a person who identifies as a progressive Christian that doesn't hold okay. those four things. So it's necessary, yeah. but it's not sufficient. Yeah. Um, fair enough. So what? <laughs> Nece- so in other words, well, to be progressive, Im- it's necessary. Necessary implies that there is someone sort of holding people's feet to the fire and they can take away their credentials. And that's not, again, when you're in a movement, that just isn't really the case. But I, I think I know, I think I understand what you're saying. I just would push back on the term necessary because there's nobody like demanding that. It's just that you can expect no. that. You can make some safe assumptions of these four sure, things. But- necessary meaning you're going to find this being the case whether someone's enforcing it or not it's going to be egalitarian second you gave the example of white supremacy now this is a whole nother topic but you're going to find evangelicals who even differ over how to make sense of critical race theory kevin DeYoung had a great piece from those who are totally critical and dismissive of crt some who see it more as a tool within evangelical Christianity. Of course, this ties to how much systemic injustice is there. Another conversation, but you're going to find evangelicals with a range of views on 
white supremacy, how entrenched it is, and how we we fight it. So that that yeah. doesn't seem to be when it's all said and done necessarily a dividing line. Um, the third one, let me see the third one you gave outside of LGBTQ with science. So there's definitely a strain within evangelical Christianity that resists mainstream science. So young earth creationism. That's one strain that tends to have a warfare model with modern science. Yeah. But there's a growing movement, say, organizations that embrace evolutionary creation. I have a friend of mine who's an evangelical Christian in terms of his views on scripture, Jesus, who believes God used the evolutionary process, believes there is historical Adam, would consider himself an evangelical. So those three, it seems to me, you could hold at least, I'm not making a point of whether I hold those or not. I'm saying in the broader evangelical community, people will hold those three in their space for it. Seems like it's the fourth one when you get to the LGBTQ relationship that that's the dividing line where you and I are going to differ over this distinctly. Yeah. I'm gonna say no, doesn't represent scripture. If you go to an affirming position, you have left what I think scripture teaches and the evangelical church. So is that really the dividing line if we had to narrow it down where now we've crossed threshold in your mind? Is that fair? I think that is an accurate assessment. Okay. That that is like, yes, you could hold uh, a more progressive view on those other three markers. But once you cross into a full affirmation of LGBTQ people, like that is for whatever reason, and I have some ideas of what those reasons are, for whatever reason, sure. that has become the litmus test. Okay, so l- let me ask you a little bit more what you mean by by Christian. On, on page 10, you say, when I say Christian, I do so in the broadest sense. My bars for what might render a person Christian are fairly low. For me, the term represents one, someone who's decided that in Jesus, through his life and teachings, there exists a trustworthy path for living full to the fullest and trying to live in that way. So in Jesus, there's a path you should follow. Second, makes an effort to identify with at least some aspects of the religious tradition and heritage that emerged in his name. So he's got, Jesus is the person to follow this tradition he's left and I identify with it in some fashion. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, a Muslim would qualify because they would say Jesus born a virgin, did miracles, uh, was sinless, the greatest prophet. So, and they would also say they identify with some of the Christian tradition although Muhammad was a later prophet that fulfilled it. Mormons would identify with this. Are you okay saying if they call themselves Christians, they're Christians? Or where does this openness start to get a little leery in in your mind? I don't know that I agree with you that a practicing Muslim would read that description and be like, oh yeah, that applies to me. (laughs) Yeah, Otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't call themselves a Muslim, they'd call themselves a Christian. Yeah, but I have a ton of Muslims who say to me, you and I worship the same God. I hold Jesus totally. in high regard. I'm tied yeah. to the tradition of Jesus in the way you've written it here, but they oh, would oh, okay. add more to it. Interesting. Okay, so you have Muslim friends that identify with aspects of the religious tradition and heritage. Like they, they, do, they, they do some things that are considered traditional Christian practices and traditions and rituals. I guess that surprises me, but they, they might be out there. Okay. Um, yeah, as as I said in the, the section that you read, I do try to hold a pretty big tent for for the term Christian. I'm not I'm not going to be I'm not 
I'm, I'm nobody's gatekeeper. I was a gatekeeper okay. for long enough. And I, um, those days are, are well behind me. Uh, so I'm not going to be a gatekeeper for anybody. If someone wants to identify as a Christian, uh, I might have some thoughts on that. Like, good Lord, there are people, there are people that, uh, we, don't, we're not, we don't need to get political, but there are people that have identified as Christian for the last four years. And I would have some real questions about that. Like, what the crap? Like, that is, <laughs> that is not Christian as I understand it. Um, but, you know, that's how they, that's the term that they use. Um, so, yeah, I, my point is in, in writing that is I'm trying to describe what I mean by Christian as opposed to create a definition that I expect others to uh, adhere to. So okay. th- that's really the point of that passage is I, want, I wanted the readers to know right up front, when I say Christian, here's what I mean by that. I mean that someone sees in the person of Jesus a trustworthy and reliable way to abundant life. Like I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. I, I totally buy into that. And also they make some effort or they try to engage in the heritage of Christianity. Like they have some connection to this religion is really the point. Um, maybe they go to church. Maybe they don't. Maybe they read their Bible. Maybe they don't. But they have some connection to the like there's an institution known as christianity me to identify as a christian to say look in some way i'm connected to that okay all right fair enough let's talk about you have a chapter it's totally insufficient for people and i get it like i see the people in the comments and i'm i understand that people do not like and they want me to stop calling myself christian uh and i i respect that i used to be of that opinion too and it's just not where i am anymore well, let's track with your position of God here, where you say uh, there's no progressive Christian way to think about God. Right. Now, you do seem confident that God is not a he. Um, but my question is, you also use the term that God is like an insisting force, which sounds like a personal being. Yeah. In your mind, is God a personal being or a force or something else that I'm missing? <sighs> I would say that was that was the hardest chapter for me to write. And probably the one that I would most like to redo. Only because, Sean, and I was okay. just talking about this with my wife the other night. Like, one of the um, – this might be a quick tangent, but it will come back to the, the topic at hand. One of the pieces of collateral damage that that has happened for me over the last 10 years as sort of – leaving my evangelical roots behind and moving towards something more progressive. One of the, one of the pieces of collateral damage in this is I've, I feel like I have lost a bit of the, the personal aspect of God that I feel like I, I, I have necessarily needed to allow some of those conceptions of God to die. For instance, God is not a white man in the cloud. Uh, Um, those those ideas, those metaphors, those conceptions necessarily needed to die for me because they were untrue, they were incorrect, they were contributing to harmful ideas. Um, but I've, I've, I've been aware over the last several years more specifically that sort of what was left behind, shout out to Tim LaHaye, what was left behind in that, uh, in the sort of the tearing apart of those conceptions was this amorphous, I don't know, capital S source, like trying to figure out how to talk about a divine 
creator without there being like a, a being in the sky somewhere. And language has just been entirely unhelpful for me in that. <laughs> it's just like, okay. I don't, I don't know y'all. I just, it's more like, here's what I can describe. God isn't, I don't know. So when you say he's got a personal being, uh, the, the idea of a being, I, I do stumble on, um, as though if we could just have the right telescope, we could f- see God somewhere as a being in that way, but personal. Now, of course, I mean, let me jump in here. Of course, no historic Christian would believe that, that you see God in a telescope yeah. because God is not out there. There's an interesting quote you have. You said, God cannot be contained by language and does not exist as a separate being out there. So I would say God can't be contained by language in its exhaustion, but that doesn't mean language cannot reflect in true ways what God is like. Like that doesn't follow from the fact that God can't be contained by language. Sure. But God isn't a separate being out there because God is everywhere, but he's a distinct ontological being who is personal. Yeah. That, that's all branches of historic Christianity would at least concede that minimal point. Yeah. Is that something you're not sure about? You're hung up on? You're changing your mind about? I think what I'm trying, because the way that you describe it is lovely and great. I just don't think it's the boots on the ground way that your typical Christian, especially within evangelicalism, conceives of God. I think they hear that as sort of this high flutin' philosophical way of describing God. For them, like when they pray, when they sing their worship songs, there is a belief or an assumption that God is a being that exists somewhere. And that if we, I know the telescope, obviously nobody thinks we can have a telescope, but the point is, like when they think about Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah in the throne room of God, and their minds are like, oh, that's a real thing that could happen someday to somebody somewhere is that they could be in a throne room and see God, like God is a being. And and that for me is is just wholly inadequate and, and, and not correct. But I want to come back to the personal part because that's what I was trying to name for me, Sean, is the thing that I've missed and has been hard for me. And I haven't been able to um, I, I mourn that part. And so I've been actually, in fact, I got a book right here. I was just talking about it last night on our live podcast. Um, I don't know if you know Richard Beck, uh, but he's got this new I book don't. out called, uh, sorry, the camera didn't want to focus on there it is, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. And for me, I'm like, I'd like to sort of re-enchant my faith a little bit because I've lost some of that. So okay. I do think that God is personal. Uh, and I do think that one of the collateral damages as a result of my move towards progressive Christianity is I have lost touch with that, but that's more a reflection of my own journey than what I think is actually true about God. Okay. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's flesh this out a little bit in terms of the characteristics of God. Uh, actually, let's actually focus on, on Jesus for a second. You have a chapter on Jesus and you ask the question, you think, what do you think about Jesus? Now, we could talk, we did an entire show on this, but the question Jesus asked was, who do you say that I am? Some obviously said he was demon-possessed. Some said he was a drunkard. Some said he was the son of God. I would answer that question, obviously, to our audience. I think Jesus was the God, man, in human flesh. I believe that. That's a standard belief of historic Christianity, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic. How do you answer that question about who Jesus was? I affirm Peter and his answer, you are the Christ. Uh, I affirm the early Christians who saw in Jesus the 
the manifestation of the long-awaited Messiah. Like they had anticipated that there would one day be another anointed one like Moses who would come and free them and liberate them at that time from their Roman oppressors. And there were those that saw in Jesus and his teachings in his, um, in his death and certainly in his resurrection, like, Oh, it's not the kind of liberation we were expecting. It's not the kind of Messiah that we anticipated. Uh, but this, he, he is the one we were waiting for. And I totally affirm that. I, I agree with that. I, I affirm that, um, late, you know, it was within a couple centuries after that, that then I think the early church started trying to figure out how do we, how do we, how do we name all this? How do we talk about all this? How do we, who really was Jesus? Who, who, what does it really mean to be the Christ, the Messiah? And, you know, Bart Ehrman has some great uh, research on to sort of how Jesus became God, how Jesus became Christ in terms of being like looking back at his life and saying, wow, like the author of Hebrews. When we look at Jesus, he was like the exact representation of God, which I totally affirm, BT dubs. Um, he's like the exact, he's the express image of God. Uh and then later on in, in the letter to uh, letter one, John, um, which added even, even more down the road was like, what if there's like this three different ways that God exists in the world? What if there's God, the creator? And then we saw in Jesus, this unique express manifestation of God in human form. That's interesting in a way that we've never seen before. But then also guys, we need to talk about the way that God seems to move in all of us and seems to reside. What if we, and so you have like this God, the creator, God, the father, you have Jesus, the son, and then you have the Holy spirit. And so this doctrine of the Trinity kind of was their way to try to put some language around their experience, to try to name these phenomena that they had been witnessing uh, over and over and over again. And I think that's a really helpful and useful way to talk about it. I, I really do. Um, I, I, don't, I don't begrudge those who hold to a real tight Trinitarian theology. Um, I might asterisk a little bit here and asterisk a little bit there, but I think Jesus was... I, to sum, to sum it up, I think Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who uh, provided a type of liberation and salvation um, that was not in the way that the church or that the early Jewish people in the first century thought it would be. Um, and I affirm that he was the an express image, exact representation of. So, if you want to know what God looks like, here's the end of the story. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. That's the best picture we can get of who God is. Okay, so if I'm if I'm tracking, are you saying that you affirm? like the Nicene Creed, classic Christianity, which has been affirmed across different Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, will differ over what it means that God is triune, differ over what it means the relationship between faith and works, but certain core beliefs have characterized Christianity since its inception. You're saying you embrace those core beliefs. I think I'd have to know a little more specifically what you're asking, what core okay. beliefs. Not, okay. not that it matters all that much. We're okay. just a couple of dudes on a YouTube channel, so nobody's going to hold me well, to this. But I, I, it is okay. more like, yeah, I think I would have to be a little more in order for me to answer with integrity. Because I don't want to just okay. placate you or other people by saying, yeah, sign up on the Nicene. I don't know to- if I do. To- yeah. Totally fair. So, like, do you believe – you say there's one quote I came – it said – Jesus was human, full stop. Do you believe he was God in human flesh? So you affirm his humanity, would you equally affirm his divinity? Because that's something you don't talk about in the book. 
the reason why I don't talk about that in the book and why I would even hesitate to give an answer that I think many of your viewers would appreciate, <laughs> which we talked a little bit about in our tech rehearsal, like um, just the way that I talk and the way that I answer is not sufficient for a lot of Christians. And I get that. I've even seen some people comment, like he keeps saying, I think, and for me, and I feel, I'm like, yeah, that's how I talk. Like I'm honest about these are my opinions and my thoughts and my feelings and you don't have to uh, like them or listen to them. Um, when, when you asked me that question, was Jesus fully God? I say yes, knowing that what I mean by God is probably different than what you mean by God. So therefore, if what you mean by God, are you asking, do I think Jesus was that? I would probably say no. <laughs> okay. How's that? So what I mean by God is the eternal, self-existent, all good creator of the universe stepped into human race in the incarnation and was fully human and fully divine. That's the quick summation what I yeah. believe. Is that I something think, you're leery to affirm? Or you're like, yep, I'm on board with that. Well, or no, I don't. I think the affirmation that was spoken over Jesus at his baptism, behold, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. I think that's an affirmation that can and is spoken over all of us. I think that all of us are, and I said this earlier, all of us are are children of God, and that's okay. that's biblical. I don't, you know, it's not just me pulling it out of my butt. Sure. Um, I believe that we are all beloved children of God, and so yes, I believe that God was entirely and fully manifest in Jesus of Nazareth, a hundred percent. And Sean, I believe God is fully evident and manifest and indwelling in you and in me okay. and in Nikik 103 and PudgeNet and Redeemed right, 5 right, right. 597. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, so. Here, look, I, I'm, I'm just looking for clarity. Mm. I look at Jesus and I say, he's similar in the kind, kind in sense that he's human as both of us, but he's different in substance because he's also divine. Do you accept that distinction and go, yeah, I was fully made in God's image. Jesus is fully in God's image. But there's a qualitative difference in who Jesus was and is yeah. that is different in terms of his divinity than you, me, and others. Yeah, I, I think if I can be so bold, the reason why you think that's the case is because people who told the story of the life of Jesus in the Gospels and people who wrote letters later on known as the New Testament – have said as much. So that, that's where you get that from. And that's wonderful. That's fine. But what I would say is that was their way of trying to, to name and describe and put language to their experience. So I, Oh, I lost my, th I lost my train of thought. Sorry. My dog started barking and someone pulled up and I'm like, Oh crap. Can they hear the dog barking? Um, what was your question? So you were, you were talking Something about unique how... in Jesus. I, I, I just think that, uh, I, I affirm that the early church was trying to make sense of everything. They were trying to make sense of who this guy was, what he was saying, um, what their experiences were when they were with them and the way that they sort of concluded the, 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 the best way they could think of describe it was to talk about him as God. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I would have too. Like if, if I would have witnessed all that and seen all that, maybe okay. that's how I would describe it too. So, Would you affirm the historical resurrection that Jesus walked? He was dead, 
physically rose on the third day as the first fruits with a resurrected body. Do you affirm that as a historical fact? Because the way you talk about it in your book is more like a metaphor, not a real historical fact. Yeah. I think if you were to go back, uh, and if anybody wants to here, by the way, you can go to SojournGrace.com. That's our church's website. And if you were to go back and listen to the last seven years of sermons on Easter Sunday, you'd probably get a bit of a sine wave on how Colby feels about this idea. <laughs> so there'll be some Easter sermons where it's like, yes, literal bodily resurrection, empty tomb, 100%. Then the next year, be like, well, I don't know, y'all. And then it just kind of goes like this. So Sean, I guess it just I, I I don't know. I don't know. Some okay. days it totally does not make sense to me. Like, come on, body coming back from the dead. And then other days it's like, well, this existence that we have right now is pretty strange. Like, I can't explain this either. Some things are pretty weird in life. So, yeah, maybe the tomb really was empty and this guy did come, did come back from the dead. So, look, this is helpful. All I'm asking for is clarity because we want to know some of the differences between progressive Christianity and evangelical Christianity. So you're given what you think is your best answer, and that's fair. That's all That's all I'm asking for. And yeah. people are weighing within, in with their <laughs> Within their progressive thoughts. Christianity, you're going to have all sorts of different takes on that. You're going to have your empty tumors, which are literal resurrection. You're going to have yeah. now is a, is, it was a metaphor that was like Marcus Borg. It was just they experienced the resurrection in their heart. Uh, all of that is within this large movement of progressive Christianity. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about your, your, uh, your views on the scripture because this is really at the heart of a lot of it. And you say that the Bible is inspired. Now that's us using the same words. But I think we mean something very different about this. If I read your book correctly, when you say the Bible's inspired, what do you mean by that? Yeah, your instincts, are, you, you read it correctly. So whereas I used to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and then the inspiration, which sort of fed those other two eyes, um, you know, now I, I recognize that the inerrancy of Scripture is an untenable position to hold, and the infallibility of Scripture really just doesn't make any sense. Um, but inspiration, for me, it's less now about a God who sort of uh, uses humans, you might imagine, uses humans to be the exact pen to paper. So God's like, I really want to write a book, but I don't have any hands. I need humans. I'm going to like enter into this human and use their body as the meat puppet to write. So it's less about that, which is to say that every single word on the page is exactly how God would have written it had God had the uh, fortune of having a pen and paper and and a physical hand. It's less about that and more about um, what I mean when I talk about God, because I do, I do. I still, I still believe that the Bible is an inspired work of art. It's an inspired collection of stories. It's an inspired collection of letters and poems, 100%. So what I mean by that, I guess, is I believe that it is still, it is a reasonable position to take that humans can be animated, for lack of a better word, animated by God. Humans can be sort of caught up into what is most true, what is most real, what is most good, what is most beautiful. And there have been times throughout human history when in that place or in that state, whatever it is, if someone's writing something and it reflects what is most true, most real about the universe, it's like, 
well, it makes sense to talk about that as being inspired by God, that that is reflective of who God is. Um, yeah, it's, it, I'm conscious of the insufficiency of my answer when it comes to the inspiration okay. of Scripture. Um, but I do hold that the Bible is inspired by God and that it may not mean what we've always thought it means. And, I, and I've been doing a whole series on my YouTube channel, by the okay. way, quick plug on the authority of the Bible um, okay. and how I interact with the authority of the Bible. Do I take it as authoritative? So I've been talking about that for like two months now. Um, but yes, I do think the Bible is inspired. No, I don't think it's inerrant or infallible. Now you have, you have a quote in the book where you said, uh, let me see if I can find this. Uh, boom. The idea was quote that God beam words to earth via meat puppet vessels known as Moses, Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, and so on. I know that's just a, a turn of phrase that you're using, yeah, yeah. but I actually, I, I know some evangelicals may think that, but I yeah. don't think that's the yeah. historic view of inspiration. That's why the Greek in Luke is different than say Mark or John, because God uses human beings and there's a divine source behind it. It's not just inspired like Michael Jordan on the basketball court or yeah. Michelangelo right, right, or right, Van right. Gogh. There's a divine To be fair, I believe my example was LeBron James in the in the book, not Michael Jordan. Yeah, that that is a big source of disagreement <laughs> between you and me who is more inspired. But we will come back to that, by the way. Um I noticed you said you could dunk easily in high school. I played college hoops and I couldn't I even dunk days. in college. So kudos to you there. Um, but let me come back. I, I, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by inspired. Because I would say Jordan was inspired. Of course, I would say LeBron is an inspired basketball player. Um, Michelangelo, Bach. But that's humans reaching their potential in a beautiful yeah. way. That's different than God coming down and being the source of something which is more of the historic Christian view. Is that what you differ with? Did I characterize your view of when you say it's inspired fairly? Um, I don't know. Maybe, Sean. I'm, I'm, I'm entirely conscious of how I'm coming up against the sort of the limits of my capacity to, to articulate this. Um, and in, in many ways, it's because I have a limited understanding of it. And, and, I'm, and I'm okay with that. I, I, under, I, I know that that, you know, I see, uh, I see some of the, the comments here. People are really not happy with me. And I totally, I hold, I, I get it. I totally get it. I get that my answers are uh, incomplete sounding and feeling uh, frustrating. Um, and that's, and that's totally fine. When you describe, when you describe back to me sort of this low level inspiration, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm conscious of how like there's that sort of low level of inspiration. And then, the meat puppet idea is this sort of the, the plenary inspiration, the this high level of God, like taking over humans to write it. And I just, it's somewhere in the middle there. And I, I don't have a better way to describe it other than to say, yeah, I think God inspired the Bible and the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. So that clearly can't mean this super high level of inspiration or it could. And now we're stuck with the God who like willingly okay. uh, wrote in contradictions and incorrect things, which so I that, guess someone that, could hold that. I don't know anybody who does. That, that's a conversation about inerrancy and contradictions. Yeah. I would yeah. love to have, obviously, you know, I thought about this. That is another time, but it's obvious yeah. to our audience that that's where we differ, which is fine. You mentioned the authority and you've been talking about this week. So 
obviously I'm looking for like the summary of your view, but I've been reading some. <laughs> you and everybody else, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so I've been reading a couple commentaries by Dennis Prager, who's Jewish. And he writes one on Exodus, one on Genesis. And in the beginning, I forget which commentary it was. He says, there's some really tough passages in the Old Testament. And because he believes the Bible's authoritative, it motivates him to go deeper and look for answers and reasons. And many times because of that, he's found some very plausible explanations he wouldn't have if he had stopped and just said, well, that makes no sense. Yeah. So when I look at scripture, I think there's a sense of authority if I interpret it correctly, whether I like it or not, these come from the source of God and it would be above me. And I'm not pretending I always live it, fall short all the time. That is not my point at all. But there's authority because of its source. Do you hold that about scripture or does it have a distinct authority from any other book? Yeah, I think I... I had a, a similar posture as the gentleman you referenced, which is to say, when coming up against something that doesn't seem to make sense or that sort of initially disturbs us, keep going with it, like di- go deeper with it. Um, and so that actual move, I think about Acts 17, the Bereans uh, who were who were called by the author of Luke's is like more noble because they... They dug deeper into this stuff. Like that was what I did. And that was how, that was how I got to where I am today was by digging actually more into it and, and asking more questions and getting more curious about it. Not just, and this is one of the straw men that many conservatives make of those who identify as progressive is they're like, Oh, you just are wanting to go where the culture's going, or you're just, you don't like it. And so you dismiss it. And like, I don't actually know any progressive Christians who got to their progressiveness that way. Oh, like Almost all of us have taken our faith, taken the Bible more seriously, tried to get more curious about it, and as a result, have shifted away from from some of our old beliefs. Um, so yeah, so that is that's the same move I make, Sean, when I come to these passages, uh, Deuteronomy, um, yeah, anything in these Old Testament words like that does not. I said earlier that Jesus is the right quoted Hebrews, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Anytime in the Old Testament where something is attributed to God, but it doesn't at all resemble Jesus, I'm like, let's focus in on that because something is going on here. Um, this is not who God is. Uh, so what else might be going on here? Because that's who God is. That's Jesus. We can feel good about that. This? Kill every man, woman, and child? Hmm. There's something else going on here. Okay, so if Jesus believed that and he affirmed the Old Testament, then there's got to be some reason for that if Jesus is God in human flesh, even if I don't get it. I don't like that. Troubles me on different levels. But if we have the scriptures interpreted correctly, Jesus really believed that, and I think he did. Then I look at that and go, Jesus is God. I don't have the authority to change his views, whether I like it or not, because as Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. So I look at issues like hell, genocide, LGBTQ relationships, you name it. And my lens, now there's other ways I will look at this, but a primary scriptural lens is what does scripture teach? Whether I like it or not, it's my job to follow what scripture says. It seems like you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, Genocide in the Old Testament, and you talk about some of the what you call the angry views of God, that can't be right. 
So how is that not a lens that's brought to scripture that it's interpreted through? Or is that not a fair question? That's kind of what I'm trying to get at. No, it's great. There's like three or four things in there to respond to. So first, I think you're smuggling in when you say that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. That's fine to say that, but that's not the same thing as saying that Jesus would affirm a reading of this Old Testament passage where God commanded a genocide, that Jesus would then say, that's how to understand that story. And that's who God is. So I don't, I think we need to be careful about smuggling in our sort of Protestant Western American evangelical understandings of the Bible and saying, or of the Old Testament and saying, well, Jesus in a couple places in the gospels seemed to affirm something in the Old Testament. Therefore he affirms evangelical readings of the Old Testament. No, 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 no. Like that is a big leap in logic that I cannot make at all. Uh, second, oh, no, by, by uh, the way, hold on, hold on right there. That's not an evangelical yeah. reading. I mean, Jews would affirm that Catholics would affirm that throughout history. And so far as I know, it's scripture. Jesus says, have you not read? He holds the scriptures authoritative and those views have been understood historically. So you're right. I, I would recognize there's a difference between an interpretation of those passages. Yeah. But this is not just an evangelical view. This is the primary view throughout her church history. I think I think we have to disagree there, Sean, only insofar as to say like the Old Testament itself is sort of a conversation between different traditions, the priestly tradition and the prophetic tradition. So there isn't even a unified voice in the Old Testament, which is the, the Jewish Bible. There isn't even a unified voice there about the character of God, um, which is part of why you get to uh, uh, situations like, um, is it Micah? Um, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what the heck? We just have this entire books of the Bible all about sacrifice and this whole system. And now this prophet's saying, no, 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 no. It's about mercy. And then Jesus affirmed that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So I don't, I actually reject your position that there is this unified view of who God is in the Old Testament and that I'm an aberration of that in my, um, in my position. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that characterization. Okay, that's that's fair. Keep, yeah. Yeah. There are so many rabbit trails I want to go down. There's so many. No, it's great. We're, we're pushing great. time here. I'm um, good. But you're yeah. good. Okay. Um, back to the issue of authority. Part of the question was, mm -hmm. if so, if Jesus embraces hell. I don't like it. Do I feel obligated to follow and believe that, whether I like it or not? Or would you look at that and go, yeah, a loving God can't believe in hell. That is incompatible even if we interpret Jesus correctly. I kind of disagree with the question, Sean, because Jesus didn't, uh, Jesus didn't, well, at least when you say the word hell, I really have to ask, like, what do you mean by hell? Because if, if by hell you mean like Dante's Inferno, you mean that after life on earth, a soul might experience eternal torment, maybe even eternal conscious torment, which is like the, the most, unjust, unloving thing anybody could imagine. That conception of hell, Jesus had nothing to do with. Like the only times that Jesus referenced what we might call hell, he was referencing Hades. He was referencing the, the uh, like uh, a, a sort of literal physical place on earth that became this metaphorical representation for judgment. Nothing to do with life after death. Jesus did great. Jesus didn't really care about life after death. He cared about life before death. Um, so, yeah, I kind of disagree with the, with the question. If Jesus were to affirm something akin to the evangelical doctrine of hell, 
then that would be that'd be really curious. That'd be like, oh, well, I guess I do need to maybe reconsider that. But you know, when I did my deep dive into hell when I was in seminary, it was like, geez, look at Jesus when he talks about hell. He does not talk about hell the way that evangelicals talk about hell. Full stop. Okay, that's that's obviously an area we're going to differ on, <laughs> which would take us aside. I guess the heart of what I'm getting at using the hell and genocide is not so much the particulars of how they should be interpreted, but the authority of Jesus. If he says something about natural marriage, if he says something about the afterlife that's uncomfortable, do you feel obligated to believe that because scripture is authoritative or not? Or is there a third category I'm missing? Well... When I talk about authority, when I talk about the authority of the Bible, one of the distinctions I try to make is that there's different kinds of authority. Uh, And for me, in order for authority to be what I call an agreeable authority, which is where a person willingly submits, willingly says, I acquiesce to the authority of whatever that source is. In order for that to be the, the case, there has to be a degree of freedom and trust. And there has to be, the source has to be good and worthy of respect and trust. What I've noticed is that there is, there's an expectation among some Christians that the authority of the Bible has more of what I would call like a a controlling authority, which is, well, regardless of how we might think about it, if it says this, and basically what we mean by that is if it says that and I interpret it in this particular way, then we're just stuck listening to it like a drill sergeant because we have to take its orders. Whereas I would say, if, for instance, if this passage says something about women needing to be silent in church, that should be an immediate red flag that there is something going on here that we should investigate further. And we shouldn't just be like, well, the words on the page say it, so we're stuck listening to it. Like, no, we need to get curious about that and, and maybe figure out what was going on and does that still have anything to do with uh, us here today. Um, And if at the end of that exploration, Sean, the answer is, yeah, then I'm like, okay, great. Then we acquiesce to it. Yes. Yes. Jesus says, um, I tell you that if someone strikes you on the right cheek, then turn to them or left or whatever, turn the other, that classic thing. For me, it's like, well, once we understand what that would have meant to his early audience uh, and we can see how that plays out in human relationships. I submit, I willingly place myself under the authority of that teaching. And so when I get struck on the cheek, I I might want to strike back. um, But the authority of the teaching of Jesus that I have willingly said is good and worthy of my submission tells me not to. And so it's got this guiding and correcting um, authority in my life. Okay. Last last question for you. I, I have so many questions for you, Coley. Oh my gosh, I want to explore every single one of these rabbit trails. But this is it, I promise. You have a line in your book that says, fundamentalism is a type of extremism. And progressives can be fundamentalists just as much as conservatives. Explain. Oh, I just, good Lord. That was one of the, the earliest surprises to me when I ventured into the world, the movement of progressive Christianity. It was like, oh, watch where you step because... There are progressive fundamentalists just like there were evangelical fundamentalists. So I guess the idea of fundamentalism is can just be described as it is our way or the highway. Like there's just one way to think about things and there's one way to do things. Everything's black and white. Um, and that sort of thinking is not exclusive to any side of the spectrum. It can show up, can show up anywhere. 
so yeah, in the within the movement of progressive Christianity, there are those that demand allegiance to certain ideologies. There are those that say, you know, at our church, Sean, we we have a we try to hold a really big bucket for a lot of diverse beliefs, and we do a lot of work at our church to invite those who still have a lot of resonance with traditional Christianity and really like when the Bible is taught and really like when Jesus is sung about. And then we have those who are fully agnostic and are there for the community and really just can't stand it when the Bible is taught. And they like, they all are part of our community. And the fundamentalism happens when those who are real sort of anti Bible teaching or really just, I don't want to hear about Jesus start making those who feel like, they want that. They start making them feel like they don't belong anymore. So I guess it goes back to the idea of belonging. Fundamentalism is you don't belong here. You need to fit in. And the difference between belonging and fitting in is belonging is you just, by virtue of being you, you get to take up the space. Fitting in is you got to chop off this part, squeeze in that part, adapt that part in order to fit in here. And for me, um, fundamentalism is all about fitting in and having to okay. change and be this. Uh, and that can exist, I think, on, on any side of the spectrum. And it certainly exists within the progressive world. So thanks for your willingness to come on. Maybe we can follow up and have A, B, or C in, in due yeah. time, I think, would be would be helpful for folks. Um, yeah, I, very I think quickly. just one, one – oh, Go ahead. One, can I say one thing about the clarity? Just I, Yeah. I, I just wanted to honor that in people. Like I want to honor – that a type of clarity is really important to a lot of people. And that makes a ton of sense. Like, and I, and I, I just, I honor that. Like, of course, if you, anybody, if anybody is of the opinion that they have to have the right beliefs in order to be in right standing with God, then that makes so much sense that they would then want to have a type of clarity and clear cut answers. And I just want to affirm that, like that makes sense. It's just not where I'm at anymore. And it's not where a lot of people okay. who are in the progressive movement, it's like, you know what, the, the having the exact answer isn't what it's all about. And so there's some comfortability with maybe having what sounds like a less of a clear answer. It's not black or white. It, it's gray and gray doesn't really always feel all that good. I told, so I just, I want to affirm that for the, the listeners or the watchers that, um, it, you're not wrong when you're like, why can't Colby just give a straight answer? Well, it's just not where I'm at anymore. So. Thanks again. Hang after a minute. Wanna wanted to say goodbye, but again, thanks everybody for for tuning in. It's a great conversation. Thanks, Sean. It's been great. All right. Bye bye.